There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Angie Smith, theatre and dance producer at The Barbican, and this is our final episode of Inspired, a series where we ask an artist to invite someone who's influenced their creative lives to share the stories behind their connection. Bringing this first series of conversation to a close, we have Dickie Bowe and Fiona Shaw. Over the last decade, Dickie Bowe has developed a reputation as a pioneer of queer performance, emerging from the drag tradition of lip-syncing. Using archive recordings and original interviews, Dickie's unique performances have seen him channel the likes of Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe and most recently Hamlet in 2019's award-winning Remember Me. In 2014, Dickie won the Oxford Samuel Beckett Theatre Trust Award, which supports the development of emerging practitioners engaging in bold, challenging and innovative performance. He created Camera Lucida, which was performed at the Barbican. It was also through this award that he was first introduced to Fiona Shaw. Fiona Shaw is one of the most recognised actors of her generation, known for her extensive work in the theatre, including Julius Caesar and Testament of Mary at the Barbican, Ibsen's Hedda Gabler and Brecht's Mother Courage. You'll also recognise her from film and TV, including Harry Potter, Killing Eve and Fleabag. So let's listen in to Dickie and Fiona, a perfect way to end a series celebrating the connections between artists and those who inspire them. So now we're in Zoom. So are we starting? I think it's now's as good a time as any, isn't it? Yeah, yeah suddenly it was just completely inhibited. <laughs> it is inhibiting. I find it inhibiting. Um, so if we're starting, what should we start with? Should we start with... Um, uh, establishing a little bit of context from context yes, from when we met. Hmm. So it would have been about 2014, I think. I think you're probably accurate and I probably wouldn't remember. Well, that was the year that I won the Oxford Samuel Beckett Theatre Trust Award. And they wrote to me and they said, would I meet this young man because you had nominated me, which of course was the biggest honour of my life. <laughs> and um, you came for dinner and I... I was just blown away. I thought, what, what am I going to teach you? You knew everything and way, way ahead of me. Well, I don't know. It sounds like a little bit of an exaggeration. But um, why did you say yes to that? Because, I mean, presumably you hadn't he- heard of me from Adam. Um, I just think it was quite... I-, I was surprised. I thought you were a long shot. I thought, okay, let's aim high. Uh, let's ask Fiona Shaw to be 
uh, my mentor. What did you want? I remember you actually asked me that question. When you came well, up to me in your dressing room at, at, the, at the Barbican and said, what do you want from me? <laughs> I think it's because I, do, I felt that I knew a lot about the classical theatre. I mean, only because I spent 30 years working in it and understood how it works and how, not how the theatre works. Each play is like a new, you know, the Himalayas rising again in front of you, but just that I knew how to deal with language and how it functions. And sometimes that's useful to somebody but when we met, it became very clear that that's, your interests were not really in that sort of thing. So there is a kind of boring lecture I can give you on how language works and how the ambit works and how it breaks and how it works in reverse. And all of those things, I suppose, was the only knowledge, inverted commas, that I thought I was carrying. But I think you wanted something else. Yeah, I think now it, it might have been um, in a way superficial even because... I seem to remember Romilly, who ran the Oxford Samuel Beckett Theatre Trust Award, had sort of said, you know, think of who would you, you know, like to be to be like, <laughs> more or I, less. Yeah. You know, yeah. who who would you, whose sort of career, whose whose life do you kind of think you would like to sort of move towards? Um, whose kind of life? And I was like, oh well, Fiona Shaw. <laughs> um, so um, and just what did you perceive that to be? You know. What was the, the picture there? Well, I think it was about the ability to move between fields. You know what I mean? Um, so, uh, and also there was, I mean, I knew that you were, because I'd done a lot of solo shows, and this in the, in the Oxford Samuel Beckett Theatre Trust Award, I was going to be devising and directing, uh, really, really for the first time properly. Um, and you directed. Um, you know, um, I just felt that there were uh, enough parallels um, in that way, yeah. you know, and, and my desire was to be able to to do that, to move across disciplines and um, be able to do a solo show, but then be able to do it, act in somebody else's thing and then be able to direct something. Yeah. But, you know, as you ask the question on the, on a more serious level. I'm sure I, 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 what you met was not somebody assured in those areas because I think I can see why I had an enviable uh, CV because I have done a lot of things and I gave up, I think we discussed this, I gave up everything to do it. I gave up my life in order to have my life. So, I mean, when I look back now and think of, of uh, how my years were, 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 were portioned out, I was always, you know, rehearsing one thing whilst finishing something else and that was the life of... A theatre artist and because I was sometimes in operas and um, worked with Deborah Warner who directed operas I understood in essence the again these sort of rules really the um, the rules about how to approach the thing never the solution I mean that uh, so in a funny way even though we met there's nothing I can teach you except to say this is impossible and you'll find this is impossible and this is impossible. But I think the key to that is to not be frightened of it being impossible. I think that's the thing that I, I've learned. It's this thing is impossible. You'll never be able to do it except that you do know you need a bottle of water and um, a rucksack. <laughs> and you think, okay, I've got the rucksack and the bottle of water. I, I, I think it's really that. So I get shy and inhibited. In fact, of course, I probably do know quite a, a lot how to answer questions and trust. When I met you, 
I felt when you said you were devising things, because I hadn't really ever devised things. I'd done things on my own. I'd really reacted to things and, and tried to make them new, right? The wayside, you take, you take a boring old poem and you try and, you just try and stay with it until something occurs where it meets where we are now. But you were devising things. I, I, I would have been terrified of that. But I, I liked and I understood that you were going to walk into, it's like going into a maelstrom of hailstones, isn't it? You just think, I'm going to walk out there. I don't care. I know how to do this, but I'm going to do it. And the desire to do it is half the, the desire, not half the achievement, but the desire is the huge part of getting you out to do it. Yeah, I don't know where that desire comes from, but, you know, I think one of the things that uh, I learned from you probably quite quickly was to try and have a sense of humour, you know what I mean, to try and have a lightness around um, around the thing, you know, because at the time it felt a bit like, like this, everything's riding on this. Everything's riding on this uh, piece of theatre that I'm going to try to make. And, um, and it quite quickly became apparent, you know, that no, everything's not riding on this. This is just, this is just an experiment. I think some things are riding on it. I mean, you're right about, you know, of course it matters when you're laying out your pack of cards that you really hope an ace of spades comes out, you know, of course. But failure or the thing that is a disaster or a grand failure is also very much part of it. And But it, what does matter is that I think you did this in spades. You'd already made a mark by winning that prize. You know, somebody had already noticed something about you. I mean, that's the, the only justification for prizes is that they just remind the person that maybe they do have something. You know, oh, that's a nice thing to say. Yeah. They just um, say, ah, yeah, I think you've got something there. And you think, oh, do I, do I? But you don't have to then produce gene works of genius from, from then on. But you do, you have to move away from banality. It probably is the thing to say, be brave. And, and I think uh, that I was quite brave in that, in, in that show. And, and I definitely did not create a work of genius, you know. Um, it was in some ways, you know, I, I, the, the, I just remember seeing so many nonplussed faces yeah. <laughs> coming out of that theatre um, after uh, that show. Um, and not to say that some people didn't, you know, that some people liked it, um, but it was definitely... Um, but in its essence, did it take you to where you got to with your Hamlet show? I mean, in, in essence, you were on the same... You'd found a, a thing, a bauble. Yeah. You'd yeah. found a, a, a Rubik Cube, a, a sort of... Um, a, a fulcrum on which to turn thought Definitely. or mm, I, th yeah. I think that's what it is yeah. and also I think that because I was so much up in my head when I was uh, making Camera Lucida actually you know I learned to go the other way so that by the time I was making the Hamlet show I was much more just in an intuitive flow um, and in some ways I feel like the Hamlet show was more effortlessly clever you know what I mean? If that's what, if that's the sort of value that you want to put on the thing, um, not that it really matters that it was that it was clever even, but um, uh, yeah, well, it so was I clever think... because apart from anything else, it was engaging. You know, not, not, not everything is engaging. It was terribly engaging, and we didn't know where it was going. The cleverness, which I agree, you should be suspicious about, is not about wrapping it up, but rather about how you opened it out. I think that's what was clever about it was that we began to see Hamlet not just as the as the icon but we began to see the fragments of Hamlet through the 20th century up to the people that we know were famous Hamlets and and sense of humor flowing through it um tell us about the premise of it tell us the premise of it just to well I'll try and be as succinct as I can um the first idea 
given to me by a cabaret performer called Dusty Limits was that I should do a human Hamlet mixtape so that I should take great recordings of Hamlet like Richard Burton and Olivier and Gielgud and uh, mash them up, chop them up and then trans channel them through the body in an epic lip sync where I, where I do the whole play and play all the parts and every great person that's ever played any of those parts comes through me um and um i thought actually that's a good idea and it just so happened at the same time i had a meeting at the national theater studio during that conversation with the project's producer there a guy called matthew poxon he's not there anymore but he we started talking about hamlets and i started thinking about whose voices might be interesting and i we talked about daniel day lewis and i was wondering because i knew there was a recording i was thinking like you know um because of the legend of of uh of the, the circumstances of him leaving Richard Eyre's production of Hamlet at the National, um, whether it would be ethical to, to use his voice, um, you know what I mean, if, in the ghost scene, even though I thought it would be theatrically interesting and all this kind of thing. And then Matthew said, yes, yeah, no, interesting. You know, it's a shame though, isn't it, that that story about Daniel Day-Lewis has eclipsed um, the story of Ian Charlson, um, you know, and I'm slightly ashamed to say that I said, I, I said, um, what's, what story of Ian Charlson? And, um, and so he told me that Ian Charlson, you know, took over from Daniel Day-Lewis while he was dying of AIDS, you know, and I became obsessed. And I thought, well, I, in my human Hamlet mixtape, I want to build up to Ian Charlson's Hamlet, but then I discovered that there's no recording, so mm -hmm. that can't be done. I met up with Martin Sherman, the playwright, and I told him, oh, I've become obsessed with Ian Charlson's Hamlet and I've, I don't know what to do with this show idea now, you know? And he's like, oh, well, if, you, if you're interested in Ian Charlson's Hamlet, you should talk to Ian McKellen. You should talk to Richard Eyre. You should talk to Sean Mathias. And then I realised that I needed to stop auditioning Hamlet's, recordings of Hamlet, to, to channel in my mixtape and instead start recording memories of people who were there. I thought of it as a theatrical eulogy, actually. A sort of lost Hamlet, that, that Ian, Ian Charlson had been a sort of lost Hamlet and a dead Hamlet, which is, I mean, dead prematurely Hamlet. Yeah, and there you, but the, you, you found in that a new move to be lip syncing people who were talking about the dead Hamlet and who are people. They're not people in an artistic, I mean, they are artistic, but they're not speaking poetry. They're speaking their own memory of watching that Hamlet. And that's a whole new vein, isn't it? Because now you can do people, ordinary people. That's right. Yeah. Um, and it was different in that they're, you know, they're all, they're still alive, those people. Yeah. Um, and previously, most of the shows that I'd done involved people who's, yeah, voices of people who, who who had died. And I think that created a new and interesting uh, yeah. path. So the play changed from being what you thought. I just think this is very interesting for anyone making something. You think it's about John Gilgood and Lawrence Olivier and everything playing Hamlet. And you could do that really well. And then you sort of throw that good idea out because as Peter Brooks says, there's always a better idea behind a good idea. But it all came together because two weeks before the first performance at the Almeida, I got my second interview with Richard Eyre because the first interview, I remember I texted you after I'd done this. I went to, to visit him and, and he, he gave me his time and he gave me a lovely interview. And at the end of the interview, I realized I'd pressed pause instead of record. And so I got a second interview with him, uh, but it was only two weeks before we did it at the Almeida. And it was from him describing how he got into theater through going to see Hamlet that I've navigated a way of um, bringing all these voices the together. Yeah, framing the thing. I mean, I was there the night that Ian McKenna was there and he was in, he was flabbergasted 
to see his voice being <laughs> being enacted by you whilst he was watching. Of course, that was almost an added benefit for me and the rest of the audience that night. We saw Ian McKellen watching you doing Ian McKellen doing Hamlet. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the framing was just, you know, wonderful, wonderful, um, because that's part of what the arts are, aren't they? They just open up. That's the first time I just realised that was the first time that, that it must have been that anybody who I was lip syncing the voice of saw it being done. But they're um, often dead. That's right. <laughs> exactly. The other ones I tend to be dead. They they tended to be exactly. That's right. Now tell me why you what what got you from maybe being an actor? I mean, which you are as well now and very much so, but how you started why why lip syncing? Well, nobody was giving me any work as an actor, you know, to begin with. Yeah. Um so and why I was, was that? Well, Why because was I was, I think because I was a little bit strange. <laughs> you're nodding. I'm nodding because I'm just thinking, no, I can see that you might be a little bit strange. You're not at all strange. You're an absolutely engaging, delightful person. But you're not, you're not of the mode. No. You're not a type. It's amazing how the industry or the profession seems to like types much more than it likes people who could be many types. Well, because you're, you're not a type, though, are you? No, and I've suffered for it. Right. I mean, I felt like I suffered for it. I was quite resentful, actually, in my 20s, I think, or at least afraid um, that I would never find it. Yeah, I mean, I keep meeting people who say, you know, we wrote that TV series for you, but of course they always cast an English actress. Not, not, they would, in the end, they didn't cast me, even though the thing might have been written for me. You know, these things are stones in that path, but they're not stones in your path. Because you I think make not your now. Own yeah, I think not now. I think there comes a point, doesn't there, where... Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's not that I turned my back on acting exactly. Well, maybe it is. I sort of got taken under the wing of a drag queen from San Francisco um, in my mid to late 20s. They described themselves as a lip syncing drag artist, you know, which I was quite snobby about, to be frank. You know, I didn't think that the word artist and lip syncing, I didn't, I didn't really understand how. I, I understood lip syncing to be about, you know, lip syncing to Kylie Minogue in a nightclub and not necessarily having any depth but then I went to see this performer suppository spelling and um and they had made some I thought really clever choices they'd, they'd done the editing of sound themselves and uh they were virtuosic in the way that they performed so it was really the illusion that the voice was being channeled by their body was compelling and um and I thought oh wow this is a thing this is really a thing and then I didn't do it immediately they did get me dragged up you know, for nightclubs and, you know, I did a bit of nightclub performance and things. And then for an experimental performance night, I decided to return to these tapes of Judy Garland, you know, making notes for a memoir that was never written, which I'd heard and thought at the time, oh, there's a show in these tapes. And so I returned to those tapes and having had that experience, that exposure to lip syncing as a, as a performance modality, I couldn't conceive of making a performance in relation to the tapes without using Judy Garland's voice. And so I edited them into a sort of three act theatrical vignette for a cabaret, which I almost didn't do because I thought nobody's going to be interested in this. It's too long. It's crazy. It's awful. I'm not going to do it. And then one of my friends persuaded me just, just to throw caution to the wind and be brave, which I'm glad I did because it did land. And then I got asked to do it everywhere from that. I just thought, oh, this lip syncing thing has actually got legs. Then I just kept finding ways of exercising those legs. 
from that I started to, to get develop a, a really well a methodology I suppose you know or at least a rationale an artistic rationale that was embedded in really the whole history of human image making <laughs> going back to the caves you know as well as Greek theatre and and since then I found that it doesn't that it, that it may not run out of legs because there are always going to be ways of there are always going to be depending on the content of the of the audio there are going to be ways of activating it but the inspiration thing the trick of the lip syncing which is a trick as it was in a in a drag um cabaret moment is fun to do and it 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 conjures the person the real you you took the trick of it and you turned it into a kind of poetic investigation of the person or or something because it isn't i you know i would not be particularly interested in seeing judy garland lip synced doesn't but that's not what your show does yeah and it sounds like the worst thing in the world doesn't it judy garland lip sync in a way um <laughs> well it sounds fetishistic or that you're kind of hooked on judy garland but in fact you you were able to take the icon and you're doing something far more intense because you're actually zoning in on the breath the the phrasing the sound the tent of that person and seeing why in some way it was so significant to a generation or you tell me i mean something happened you elevated the lip sync into an investigation is what i would say you were doing well i think that the thing that it constantly does is it creates this condition of an of a present absence you know which is what a dead body does you know, and which is what those early Neolithic masks did. They make present the idea of somebody who is not here. Uh, the paradox of, you know, I, I, it makes present the idea of the person who is not here at the same time as it makes present the fact that they're not there. And that sort of paradoxical condition is, I don't know, very um, charged. You know, it's got a crackle. We're in the presence of that person, even though the alienation of the person lip-syncing them is keeping you aware that you're not there, not there. Yeah. It's not a minimus. I do the absolute opposite in a way. When I did Hedda Gabler or The Wayland, I think what we're trying to do is make it as if it was just written that second. So that that second and that it comes out of the people. It's not the writer because there's a big, big love of the writer's theatre in the Royal Court and in, and in the... And in a lot of the theatre, it's a writer's theatre. And people feel if you speak the writer's words, you are serving the writer. And I just never felt that. Maybe because I didn't feel particularly bonded to these. And I don't know whether you felt bonded to Judy Garland. But I felt if I could just get back into the thing itself and make it present, it'll feel like a new play. And the other aspect of that I want to say is that it takes a lot of humility. You have to really be, you can't say, well, I think it goes like this or I think it goes like that because the Judy Garland thing, you have to get exactly who she is. And if you, there's a line that you're not getting right, you just have to stay on it all day till you get it right. And it's similar with what I did, unless it's truly absorbable by me and I can exp express it and make you hear it. There's no point in going on. And is that a technical thing, do you think? No. It's, um, I mean, if we're talking about inspiration, it's, it, it is saying that inspiration is perspiration. You know, it, it, it's about believing you can get to that perfection point. It's certainly in what you do. It has a perfection. You either, you either achieve it. And at the moment you achieved your, your um, lip syncing with that, with that voice, the magic occurs. Because otherwise we're going to be watching carefully to see the, the fault. Yeah, and they happen. And, 
and they maybe they haven't, but they don't happen enough that people turn away. They're absolutely astounded that they're able to see before their eyes something that can't that is not there. And I, I, I think something if I take a poem, if I take the wasteland, I think I was trying to make the audience not lose their concentration once on what was being said in the poem. Not once, not not like thinking, oh God, I wonder what time this is finishing and I'm going to have an Indian takeaway, but that they would go, <laughs> oh, you know, my nerves are bad tonight. Yes, bad. I think, oh, our nerves are bad tonight. They're bad. Stay with me, speak to me. I, I, I'm going to stay with you, speak to you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that you kind of steal the mind of the audience. And that, you know, it's not talent. I mean, it, I'm sure there's initial talent which starts us both off at the age of five, but it's really about having the patience to say, to be honest, in that space, if in nowhere else in your life, you have to be entirely honest and say, I, if I fail in this, it's I failed you. You said something about grabbing the minds of the audience, mm. right? Which made me think of possession, mm. um, you know, and... Um, I mean, as far as talent is concerned, you know, I sort of feel like there's no such thing as talent in a way. I feel like there's just a particular form of concentration, mm. you know, in any given circumstance. And if you get the if you get the, the concentration right for the circumstance, then it appears to be talent, <laughs> you know? or it gets interpreted as talent. Because the wasteland, I mean, it's not, it's quite. A, I mean, it's 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 an ambitious thing, isn't it, to want to do that with the wasteland? Because it's a challenging uh, text to to animate. Um, in a way that nobody's going to drift off at any point. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So it does take a remarkable tenacity. Yeah. Because, you see, you know it's a great text. It, I wouldn't spend my time doing that on a text I didn't think was a great text. And by great, it means that if you throw it against the wall, explode it, meanings will come off it. But you have to find out how to explode it. You can't, it doesn't mean you've got to rewrite it or or stand on it in the ground or pour paint on it. it it's you have to just test it mm. and, and one day it chimes in in the cave of of testing it begins to reply and it's what i used to do even with shakespeare which is to try and find a plumb line try and find one line that means something to you a lot didn't mean much to me you know i was from ireland and doing shakespeare in england you know um you know, hearing I see thy loves me not the full weight that I love thee, of my uncle, thy banished father. You know, these are the first lines I spoke at the RSC. They were all thy father, thy uncle. But we all have uncles, we all have fathers. And you just slowly, suddenly hear a word uh, that you really understand. There was a line that Celia had in, as you like, where she said, and I'll go sleep. And the audience used to laugh. And it's because I understood why she said that at that second. But from that point i could work backwards and find out the way in which the rationale of that character lays itself down in a sort of hard disk in my mind it doesn't you know you might be playing the same part and find a completely different line resonated for you and you found it laid down for your mind so so the the way in then is if i'm hearing you right is that you get a heart a personal heart connection to yeah is that right it is and i think sorry we may be bumping into bigger things here but the systems with which you do that you see i think what's happened a little bit in this country is that there's a training of actors and then if you do it that way and you do the lines and as the subsidy of the theater has shrunk you have to do it all within three weeks and come out with a with something at the end of three or four weeks 
I don't think you can do it three or four weeks. I think it takes months. And I, and that's where, you know, the thing of failure or the, sorry, the feeling of failure of you saying, God, oh, I felt terrible. I went off and I did this. You can take as much time on your own to do it as you need. And I think that's terribly important, but it's completely at odds with the system of rehearsing. Do you think, <laughs> this is a slight digression, but do you think um, that Shakespeare is in general um, more interesting to do than to watch? It's a terrible thing to say. Um, <laughs> I think that, uh, certainly I think that I've learned everything about how the English language functions from Shakespeare because he and the language were so fused. I mean, God knows what went on in his soul or heart or brain, but he understood, I, I, you know, whether intellectually or not intellectually, that rhythm is the key to the unconscious. So he was able to write characters that had different rhythms to each other, even if they were all speaking blank verse. I mean, it is utter genius. He was able to take ordinary speech, turn it into poetry that sounded like ordinary speech. It's a sort of Houdini gift. But within that, there are reasons, you know, now you can take what he says and you can unpick it and work out um, you know, why he says tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Now creeps is pretty piece. How, how does he put tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and make it sound as if it's like a death knell in your stomach? He just knew. He didn't use that same trick in any other play. He used different tricks. I'm using the word trick you know, shallowly, but uh, why does he know that the witches and Macbeth, you know, begin the play not on the iambic pentameter of titum, 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 but tum ti, tum ti, tum ti. When shall we three meet again in thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly bird is done? When the battle's lost and won? And that, that that hitting of a beat on the wrong beat, it's much more talking about music than anything else, captures the audience because they're thinking, what, what, what happened? Titum, titum, titum. They're not even thinking that, but in their limbic cells, they think, they go, what, what? So he could catch you on the hip, which is really what I think you're talking about when we talk about possessing audiences. When you know that that's what's going on, you can harness it. I would be now, if I'm playing a witch in Macbeth, I would really play into the fact that it's the word when shall we three meet again that matters. It's the word when. And I do a lot of work on the word when. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I would. I'd be thinking about when a lot, because that's the word. Or the fact that in that speech, Macbeth is the one word that doesn't scan. Now, it might sound technical, but it's bloody useful if you're trying to harness a thousand people. Much harder in translated texts. Things like Mother Courage or, you know, or Hedda Gabler, or where you're dealing with a translator between you and the, the thing itself, the, the thing that the person wrote in the day one. And in that case, because, I mean, there's a general sense, isn't there, that one should be, one should, you know, that the, the, the text of Shakespeare should be um, trusted, you know, not to need to be tampered with. I don't feel that now. I mean, I completely agree that the rules of it, its purity is, is purity, its totality is a fantastic mountain range ahead of you and you climb it and try and perfect your climbing of it. But... I absolutely, it's also got so embedded in the culture that it's just thrilling when somebody else throws another line in there and goes, God, this is horrible or something, or, you know, I hate you. Um, it slightly <laughs> screws up the text, but it, 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 it acknowledges that it's very, I don't know, that the world, you know, has new curses, for instance. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. At The Barbican, we're committed to identifying new talent, nurturing emerging artists, and supporting innovative work. If you're able, please show your support by making a donation and help us to inspire more people to discover and love the arts. Text Barbican 5 to 70085 to donate £5 plus one standard rate message or visit barbican.org.uk forward slash donate. Another aspect of what you do, which is not the far past, like I don't remember... But I do remember in Charleston. Now, of course, you're not speaking to me necessarily in your show or, or my age group, but the near the recent history is very interesting too, isn't it? Recent history, just gone, just gone. Mm. And really, in a way, it's for anybody who's who's been lost. You know what I mean? It's not only yeah. about Ian Charleston. It's about Ian Charleston and all the people who died of AIDS and all the yes. people who've died. So death, death is always part of, I think, this process. I think it is. I think death is. Um, Death and childhood. Is childhood part of your acts of creation or not particularly? Playfulness, I suppose. Playfulness is childhood. Of all the plays I've done, you know, the Richard the Seconds or the things, but the things, or Medea, but the things that really linger with me now, even 30 years later, are things like Hedda Gabler and Electra. And I think they were both about childhood, but it may be that when I made them, I didn't know that. I didn't think that at all. Um, Electra is a young daughter whose father has been murdered by you know her mother which thankfully that wasn't happening in my family however she thinks her brother Orestes 
is you know not coming back to avenge his mother's death and she's furious with the brother or upset that the brother isn't coming back and then she hears the brother's dead and she has this huge speech about the brother dead now my brother had died um three years earlier and suddenly acting and acting not just playing a part that i could kind of get out of myself and be in a part but acting when i knew that my brother was dead and believing the brother was dead of course for me was the most significant part of the play to act and then she hears the brother's alive and she goes kind of mad because she's decided the brother's dead i mean that's terrible to hear somebody's dead and then that they're alive and and that that kind of crux was huge for me because her grief at hearing the brother's death gave me permission to have a grief about my brother's death my brother was not Orestes in any way and I just think that subconsciously I was probably or or inspirationally my poor dead brother was inspiring me to be better than I would have been had he not died but later in Hedda Gabler where Hedda Gabler dies at the end of the play uh, she commits suicide her death didn't particularly interest me but it did it's the last 24 hours of her life but living married in a house with a man called Tesman who she didn't want to be married to and she made a mistake of saying yes to and she made a mistake of saying she'd like that house the mistake in tripping into the tragedy of your own life you know making mistakes moving furniture about was entirely about my upbringing I didn't know that at the time either, but my mother used to move furniture around the house because my mother was ill at ease. We had lived in a rather big house. She still lives in it. Um, and she used to move furniture around because we had moved from a place called Cove to Cork and my mother was ill at ease about that move. So I think unconsciously, but I think I was working out something. But those, you know, Hedda does die. So I'm, I'm trying to say, well, there's death and childhood. I think they're the two things that had... had uh, you know, if you say them too boldly, they sound pretentious and academic or intellectual. It isn't like that at all. But maybe they're the only subjects worth going into. Well, childhood as a as an as a, an idea is a category, as a social category, is a Victorian invention, isn't it? As we know it, yeah. like so, like homosexuality, um, because it was so actually before... just an ongoing feeling, isn't it? It's about being well, alive from the moment you are conscious. To now it doesn't really matter whether it stops a thing called childhood i suppose when i say childhood i of course did a seismic thing if i left where i was from at the age of 21 once i finished university and came to london and really started my life again i went to drama school and then went into profession and didn't go back to acting on for 10 years so in a way i literally put a little wall just wondering whether that has any bearing on this inspiration or oh i'm sure the dirt of it the mud of it yeah well i knew that i was a queer child you know what i mean i was precociously aware of the world and i knew that i was i knew that i was a misfit don't say that were you a girl were you girlish so yes i was i mean well in some ways you know so yeah the the, the whole question of uh, gender and sort of same-sex interests were conflated to some extent and that's how I read the world you know what I mean and uh, yes I do distinctly remember being about six or seven and going to bed at night and dreaming w w like praying that I would wake up as a little girl or a little princess in the morning yeah because I thought that would that, that would that would correct the issue I thought there'd been some great big cosmic error you should do a show about that you should do a show about that well, because there's nothing about you the man I know and really enjoy talking to because you're terribly open you're very much yourself 
I mean, what I really enjoy about you is that I don't feel you're at odds with yourself. I'm mu much more at odds with myself. Le less so now, I think, <laughs> I'm 62 years of age. <laughs> but I, you know, so I was actually more fluent on the stage than I was in life. And I've always felt a bit, just a bit awkward. <laughs> um, uh, but you are so much yourself. The person of you is very present. But I think it's fascinating that you did not feel that at the age of five. Oh, no. Oh no, 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 no. Yeah, no, I'd, it was very clear that, I was, that the way that I was, or the way that I felt I was, the way that I understood myself to be, was not okay in the wider culture. But it changed, of course. By the time I got to adolescence, I was thinking, oh, I don't think I actually am a woman trapped in a man's body or something like that. I think I am going to be a gay man. I had absolutely no, no sense of where I was going to have a place in the culture. And I thought that I was going to have to live a lie in my life. You know what I mean? That somehow, or somehow do away with myself, somehow disappear. And um, I was quite a serious child in that sense. Well, now you're very near Judy Garland, aren't you? I mean, in a funny way. Yeah, well, they had to pretend to be something that they weren't, didn't they, from an early age, in one way or another. I mean, Marana Minera had to survive for orphanages and Judy Garland had to survive show business. So, yeah, I think being involved in theatre is a way of reclaiming a playground for oneself. I think that's very, very true. You have that. Do you, yes. do you think that, that's part of what you're... I feel, I mean, now I'm less... Uh, desirous of needing to go to that place really much less and much more integrated in my life at 62 i'm embarrassed as if um but i used to love it i love the rehearsal room i felt completely at one with the rehearsal room and it's not about getting out of your head or if anything you're tuning inside into something to the essence of who you are actually i felt really and when i was on the stage i remember being in mother courage and somebody singing a song and standing on by my cart and you know the Olivia Stage Theatre full of people and feeling entirely relaxed and enjoying looking at the girl singing the song like the audience are and feeling entirely at one with the audience. I didn't feel I had to produce, of course, it's a big show, but produce a lot of other things on other, I had to sing a lot of songs and dance around, but just the, re the profound relaxation of feeling belonging to humanity, but otherwise not feeling entirely that. So it's very interesting. There's a way of getting right into the middle of the bed, isn't it? Going by getting up on stage, <laughs> you know. Now, people um, who don't go on stage don't feel that. They think, "What?" You know, it is only performers who feel that. You know, it's the, it's like air hostess. It's like flying. You know, a lot of people don't like flying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in the gender thing, actually, and from your point of view, you know what I mean. You talked about the Greeks, you know, the relationship of women and in the Greek yeah. culture. I'm because I'm intrigued that, that something seems to have happened in the culture, it seems to me, since the um, the time of, you know, those early Neolithic cultures I've read, I'm, I'm no expert, um, were really goddess worshipping uh, cultures. The archaeological evidence in Crete is that, um, you know, women were the priestesses and the the um, the leaders in a way of of the culture and revered in a particular way that since the Greeks. And before the Greeks, um, they haven't been. I just wondered what... Well, yeah. I, I was brought up with three boys, three brothers. And so I was quite a tomboy in some ways. Myself, sort of, sort of, not really. I was also the only girl with my mother. Um, I was, you know, I had Richard Chamberlain on tape doing Hamlet in my bedroom and I was learning how to be... I, mean, I, I might have been you. I used to be sort of learning Richard Chamberlain's Hamlet. Have you ever wanted to play Hamlet? 
I, I had been asked for Hamlet, but I, I never, I felt Richard II was my Hamlet. I, I didn't think I needed to do Hamlet after that, but you know, Ian McKellen's about to do Hamlet, so maybe I've got a few years left. Um, but I have a vague feeling of not really enjoying the limitations of what it would be to be just, just a girl, you know? I think I did feel that. So I think I was always interested in texts, you know, I was interested in Yeats' poetry. None of this was conscious, but I just was interested in Yeats' poetry because it was really powerful. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick. I shall, you know, proudly would speak that in, to, in a concert when, you know, there I was age 14 going, an aged man is but a paltry thing. For me, the gender was neither here, you know, here, here nor there. I went to university and I, played the usual university plays, you know, the 60s plays, The Effect of Gamerays and Man the Moon Marigolds, you know, all those things. And then I went to drama school. And uh, at the end, just was always behind at drama school at RAD. I was always behind because I, you know, I'd never seen a Shakespeare play. <laughs> never. I'd never been to the Royal Shakespeare Company. I'd never, we didn't have school plays in our, we didn't really have much. But we had no theatrical, I don't know why I was interested in it. I just loved language, I think. And, and then I went to the RSC and it became very clear, the RSC. The, it was, I mean, about time, it was 1984 or something or five. So the second wave of feminism had hit America, probably gone through, but finally, finally hitting Stratford-on-Avon. I was living in a house with my friend Sue, who was studying theology at King's, and they were quite onto the feminism, which was not a word that I'd been brought up with. I'd read philosophy, I'd read Simone de Beauvoir, but it didn't hit. But I then really got hold of feminism. I thought it was the most fabulous thing that that actually there had been a wrong done betty friedman i read all that stuff uh the theological writers about god god the father about of course the ancient goddesses but it was that i saw that maybe there was options to not necessarily have to be the female type that the culture was and, and that was very exciting so when we went to the rc there were plays like troys and cressida where um a man says, you know, she has achieved. And the word achieved is a male word about achieving a woman. You never see a woman achieving a man or she has achieved. She is the passive voice. And we were full of these kind of arguments. We'd be up all night discussing all of that. And in As You Like It, which I played Celia with Julia Stevens and who played Rosalind, we played a very feminist two girls, very bolshy, and we enjoyed playing it. And the girls in the audience adored it. So we hit that kind of time. And we invited all these women who, there were no women directors at the time of the RSC. We invited every woman who was a director in England to come to Stratford for a meeting. You know, we did all those things and I'm very proud we did. Have you read The Chalice and the Blade? No. Yeah, it was just a book about, talk, talks about the history of those goddess cultures and about the difference between the dominator cultures that we are sort of basically run the world now and partnership cultures of a bygone age. I don't know if it ever was. I don't know. I think, I mean, I read, of course, The White Goddess and, you know, and I had a great evening once with Ted Hughes, who was obsessed with The White Goddess, saying that she always turns up in every poem, that The White Goddess, which is, which always presents herself either as a, a, a virgin, a mother or a crone. And she always turns up. And I have begun to think that Killing Eve works because you do have those three women. You have a young virgin who's in nightmare. You have a mother figure who's not a mother. And you have the crone who's me. You know, all of those motifs are true. But I wonder if it was ever the case. I mean, Elaine Sixou is very interesting about this. Yeah, years ago when we were part of that feminist world, when um, I was doing a lecture, but she, she says two things. She says, both genders have a little bias towards their own gender. 
which is such an honest thing to say. So if you're a man, you'll probably put on Please Bump Men because it's kind of, it's kind of what you're interested in. <laughs> but she also said that Clytemnestra, at the end of the Oresteia, uh, in the last play of the Oresteia, Orestes is, gets very sick. You know, he kills his mother in, in the Electra play, but he then gets very sick and poison, you know, feels just very poisoned from probably having done that. And finally, down comes Athena, the female god, but not from a mother, from her father's rib. Or She's a female who is not maternal. She comes down and she says, we must stop this. And from now on, we will invent formal punishments that are not about, I'll kill you if you kill me, and I'll kill your brother, and if you kill my brother, I'll kill you. So the law was invented. So the Greeks invented the thing called Western law. But Elaine Sixou says, the problem is that Clytemnestra, her death was never avenged which is why she said 94% of deaths are men killing women. Orestes is always killing his mother. I found that chilling, that there is a permission in the society subconsciously for men to kill women. There isn't, of course, by law, but the law is inadequate to it. And in a matriarchal society, that probably wouldn't be the case. And... The narratives that we tell ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves are so important in reinforcing that dynamic. Yes, I think the way in which boys are brought up to see women, you know, girls, you know, has from a very, very early age is 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 disjointed and has been since Orestes killed his mother. But that by the time we get to the writing of the Holy Bible, that, that idea, you know, that Mary, you know, she's not a saint, is she? You know, she's... she's um, She's relegated, actually. She's demo- the, the, the virgin birth is demoted by the time we get to the invention of Christianity. Yeah, she sort of took over from the goddesses, didn't she? She did take over. She, she became the goddess, but she had to have no goddess power. She was but she, yes, she's not allowed to be a deity. <laughs> no. But I loved, I played the Testament of Mary at the Barbican, um, which Tony Rankin very kindly produced for us some years ago. And it was great fun playing that because I played a woman who was absolutely, uh, who gave birth to her son that was absolutely conceived in, with her husband, Joseph, I mean, that was the, the, the secular version. And it is, as it were, tampered later by the, uh, you know, the, the apostles who needed to shape the story to suit their theology. But um, it was great fun playing it because the audience had the biblical story in their head. And then they meet this very ordinary woman who's, who's had her son and who she finds a pain in the arse. And he's a very arrogant young man. And that was just marvelous because it was actually very gentle lampoon on the nature of mothers and arrogance brilliant sons uh, and there it was sort of like a sort of sacrilege the virgin hardly speaks she speaks only once you know and she says you know would you mind changing the water and she says about two things in the whole in, the, in the, all the gospels she hardly ever speaks in many in some of the gospels she doesn't speak at all so she is very toned down and it's hard to believe that that as a story wasn't you know edited and edited till by the third century she was she was gone but you know women and men have every chance to rebalance this. I mean, I think the Black Lives Matter, which is literally 40 years after it began, but is exploding and suddenly change happens slowly and then very fast, doesn't it? It does. And I think that, that there's a relationship between both predicaments, you know, and I think it's got to do with language as well. I don't know about you. I think this is the really challenging notion for all of us, which is that, you know, somewhere along the way, because language is performative, you know, the idea of ownership is performative. It's not, it's not tangible it's not made of wood you know um and the ultimately the idea of saying i own this piece of land is the same as uh, saying i own that cloud you know in the end yeah yeah 
on it would free the perpetrators to just face it and allow it all to be revealed. So we are on a moment, I think, of final rebalance, but whether language will again reshape it so there's another oppression, but we disguise our our faults. Yeah. You see, that's the problem with language, which is where we're brought up to believe in it and enjoy it, and Shakespeare being you know, the great user of language. But there are many cultures, not least um, you know, the black cultures in America, who are very suspicious of white language, or the Asians who are very suspicious of white language, or the historians who seem to have taken language and decided what history was using that language. We now see that language is just nonsense. So that's been also an interesting thing about language theater, I think. Do we believe the truths that are, the, the, the more fluently they are spoken, do we believe them more? Or is the, is the patois and the street language of people much more honest? Yeah. <laughs> I think I've just <laughs> gone out of my depth. I'm swimming out to sea. It, language has two functions, doesn't it? Or at least it seems to me, and maybe I'm thinking in binary <laughs> terms in, 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 a, in, a, in an idealized, uh, in, a, in a convenient way for myself but that it has a power to connect or it has the power to separate doesn't it um and they're the choices that we have you can put, build a figurative fence around this farm and say this these crops are mine you know or put your arm around this woman and say this wife is mine you know or you can you know hmm. say, or you can be hear, come and sit beside me and let's share this sunset you know what i mean it's like it's there are lots yeah. of different ways of it's a tool it's an amoral tool but we don't like to think that we like to think that it's the tool of morality but it isn't it can it can tell you the truth or a lie and to tell the truth and a lie are exactly the same you if you see iago his fluency in lying is just as good as everybody's fluency in lying and that's the terrible truth you don't notice the lie you don't go i didn't take the cookie from the cookie jar and you know signal your your lie you say i didn't take any cookies and people believe you kind of <laughs> and silence too of course peter brook used to say the great silence is the silence just before a play opens because it is not the silence of the grave it is the silence of expectation and that moment is fantastic because it's the moment where the truth is about to be revealed or isn't. So when the curtain opens in a play and it's not very good, you think, oh, shit. But the silence is true because it's the silence of expectation. It's not the silence of a truth or a falsity. And think about silence, you know, in families, silence is full of hiding secrets. But silence is also a way of not needing to say anything with the person on the bench looking at the sunset. What's your biggest moment of inspiration? What do you think was your pinnacle moment? Or a moment you had on stage or a moment where you feel some leap happened or? I mean, it's funny when I have a moment of inspiration where I feel like I have been open enough to receive, you know, one of those sparkling electric insights, you know, or creative um, light bulbs that I, I spontaneously take a deeper breath, you know. <gasps> You know, and in the same way that when somebody tells me terrible news, you know what I mean, I take in a deep breath. Or somebody tells me something, a truth that's true for them that I recognise as being true for me. Um, you know, I take in a, a deeper breath. Um, so, I mean, I think there are lots of those moments. You know, I, I keep thinking it's a theme that comes up indirectly again and again throughout the course of what we're talking about as we meander. Um, this thing of embodiment, you know. Because, um, you know, and images, you know, I think you know, 
well, the word image is from imago, meaning ghost, isn't it? You know, images happen in the body. They don't happen just in the mind. You know, we catch them. When an image really lands in the body, it can send shivers down your spine. Um, and they, they're transported conversationally in the sense that not only through language, but that they, 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 they have a fluidity in the culture. And theatres are great cauldrons for that. You know, the theatre is like an imaginarium. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's got a fluidity. You know, I, I often feel like we're on the stage, even though we're being watched, we're the, we're, we're the witnesses in a way. And we're sharing what we've seen. That's an interesting vein, I think, very, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, when I first started, it was about showing off, for sure. Um, but now I don't think of it in that way. You know I mean? That's not really my uh, motive. It's, trans- it's transformed. It's sort of gone 180 degrees. For me, oh, the word inspiration comes into it. I'm not sure at the moment of, because inspiration is what we said earlier. I think it takes ages and ages to get to a position. But some students were asking me what was my happiest moment in the theatre. Um, greatest moment and one of them was that I played Happy Beckett's Happy Days in Epidavros in Greece and I was buried up to my neck as is the character in Happy Days and the amphitheatre in Epidavros you know has you know 11,000 people there was about 9,000 on that night and I'm up to my neck buried and I have no microphone and you're just speaking and in the tree, there was a bird just singing. It was the only other sound. It was complete silence. Those hot nights. And I'm speaking, you know, another heavenly day. Jesus Christ, man. Here, it's written in Greek, of course, on the side for the Greeks to enjoy laughing. And behind that amphitheater, way in the distance, is the mountains on which the fires were lit that said that the Trojan War was over. And I have played both Clytemnestra and Electra. And, and I, as I looked at the audience, I thought, God, if I take off all their jeans and T-shirts and put them in, the, in togas, I'm 400 years BC. And the bird is singing, and it's silent, and they're silent, and I am a kind of ghost. In my, it's the opposite of showing off, actually, is that I am watching the fact that I am in a moment of eternity, it felt. I wasn't a member of a family. I was in, and it was just the most heady thing. But of course, you can't seek that. I wasn't going to go, one day I will be alone <laughs> on the epidemic stage. It wasn't that. It was just that once it occurred, it was a culmination of my entire life in some way. Wow. Well, as you said, the moment of eternity there, I found myself taking in a spontaneously deeper breath. <laughs> yeah. Some moments you you reach a point where it ceases to be about the moment being correct or the delivering the show or making the audience happy or showing off or any of those things become something else. The the technique of lip syncing, in a way, I think of it probably sounds insane, but it's almost like a spiritual practice in that sense because you have to be present. You know what I mean? And of course, to be present is to open the portal, isn't it, to the possibility of some kind of comprehension which is not cerebral but is somatic of the eternal you know what i mean um which is a grand ambition i'm not going to get there if i'm thinking about the past i'm not going to get there if i'm thinking about the future and in terms of like doing a successful lip sync but i think it's true for all performance i think it's just true for acting in a play um like you know to be or and it's true probably also for writing it's true probably for painting um you know that but in terms of lip syncing if i I don't want to be tripping too far ahead. 
You know what I mean? I can't be. I don't want to be falling too far behind. I don't want to be preempting or mourning the, the mistake or I just yeah. want to be hovering. And so, and, and, and there, is a, there is a quality of the concentration um, which kind of erases uh, some part of my personality. You know what I mean? In that performance. Yes. Um, you know, I, and I, and I, get, I do get out of the way. And you want to be freed of your own personality. Totally. Oh, you yeah, want yeah, to be yeah. freed of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's an encumbrance. Mm. Yeah. I think that's very significant, isn't it? That are actually these personalities cling to us like little barnacles. They're just what we are, our mannerisms, the way we speak. And actually, suddenly you can be freed of it. And it doesn't mean anything about self-hatred. It's just purely a very nice state for us privileged performers. It's a, it's a way of elevating without leaving the ground. That was Dickie Bow and Fiona Shaw. And that's it for this series of Inspired on Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. Stay subscribed to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts for more weekly episodes exploring the Barbican programme and archive. And if you've enjoyed this series, please consider supporting the Barbican by texting BARBICAN followed by the amount you'd like to donate, for example, Barbican 5, to 70085. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.